Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Christian Jorgensen, Salesforce Solution Architect and the author of the Salesforce End-to-End Implementation Handbook. We discuss Christian's early career and the various roles he held before finding his way into the IT industry and building a Salesforce career. We hear more about Christian's first exposure to Salesforce, why he decided to move into a Salesforce role full-time, and how he progressed from functional consultant to solution architect. Christian explains what he noticed about Salesforce projects that led him to write the end-to-end implementation handbook, what some of the key upfront decisions are that can impact a Salesforce project success, how a company goes about estimating ROI on a Salesforce project, and what factors influence the decision around project delivery models. Finally, Christian explains what a Salesforce center of excellence is, how BAU should really be viewed, and shares some tips for companies transitioning out of project mode. I hope you enjoy the episode. Christian, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So, uh, so I, I've seen a lot of, uh, of things about your book recently. Lots of people are reading it. So I'm, I'm really excited to unpick some of that and uh, tell our audience a bit more about what they can find in the book if, if they pick it up, which I'm, I'm sure they will. Before we get there, let's um, dig a bit deeper around your career and, and find out how you ended up in the, the Salesforce ecosystem and, and writing a book. But tell me a bit about your early career and the types of roles you held um, before Salesforce. Yeah, absolutely. Because Salesforce, uh, it, it's, it's not something I did uh, straight out of uni. So uh, absolutely. Actually, I started out in sales. I worked at Carlsberg, a Danish brewery, uh, in an inside sales role, and later at Innocent Drinks, uh, selling smoothies, first at store level, and later as a key account manager, managing relationships when negotiating annual joint business plans with the headquarters of uh, convenience chains and gas stations like 7-Eleven. This was back in 2006, 2010, something around that era. Uh, if you can put it that way. A bit later, I gradually found out, uh, became aware that I really enjoy the analytical side of a uh, business uh, and so held various roles such as EMEA, sales analyst for a watch company and a channel manager uh, role at a roadside assistance company, supporting sales and customer service directors with uh, insights and recommendations about their operations. So were you, um, like, how were you gathering those insights? Like, what were you using to put that all together? Whatever data I could uh, get my hands on, really, right, related to, to the business. So it could be CRMs, or if there wasn't a CRM, then whatever spreadsheet that were lying around capturing uh, activity, uh, typically a finance or ERP system also. And then it would be about blending it all together. I taught myself Power BI to some extent and built uh, models in that uh, to be able to report both to the business and the users or employees uh, so they could see how their performance was, but also uh, management reporting for budgeting reasons and, and seeing how we're tracking there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, we're, we're doing a big project at the moment around um, salary surveys. And I think you, to, to be in that world of data, you just have to have a, like a completely different mind to the one that I have because it's just all numbers to me and, uh, and trying to make sense of it is challenging. But when, when you can actually see trends and spot them and, and obviously use, use a platform to help you do that, like it's so powerful. Absolutely. 
So when you were in cells, when you go back to the the early days working for Carlsberg and Innocent, were you using CRMs? Or did you were you um, aware of like Salesforce at that time? Um, not at that time. At Innocent, there was a system. I remember it was called Demantra from uh, from Oracle uh, or based on Oracle, uh, but it was mostly for like sales forecasting, not so much capturing the activity or the CRM aspects. I think we just used uh, spreadsheets, to be honest. Uh, then later it was acquired by Coca-Cola, and I'm sure they've matured uh, in, in the operations uh, since. But it, it was a startup, and I was part of the, the launch into the Danish market. So, yeah, it was a good uh, startup feel, also seeing how, how that grew. Did you ever, in the early days, see yourself ever working in IT? Like, did you, did you anticipate that at all? Uh, no, a uh, great question. I, I, I think about it uh, sometimes uh, these days because I, I, I really love my uh, my job and, and the role uh, as a solution architect and what I'm doing. And I really wish I knew it existed when starting out because then I would have pursued it much, much earlier, right? But it never occurred to me in the, in the early days. It was all about becoming a more senior salesperson and uh, doing more types of uh, different aspects of sales. And yeah, then gradually transitioning to the more analytical side, which is in my nature, but I just didn't uh, didn't realize it uh, early on. It's interesting you say that if you you wish you'd have found it earlier, because I think sometimes like, yeah, it's easy to say, wouldn't it be great if I could have just gone into Salesforce, but then you lose some of the appreciation for the, like a lot of the, the skills that you probably picked up in a sales role that, that actually benefit you today when you're negotiating with a client or even just putting yourself in the salesperson's shoes to understand the impact of the solution you're designing. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think I would be the solution architect that I am today if I hadn't had those uh, roles. So I guess it's uh, you can't have it both ways, right? That's right. So how did Salesforce come to, to your attention? So it was when I was at that, that company as a channel manager at the roadside assistance company, where I first came into contact with Salesforce. Um, the company was doing a major program to both replace the backend billing platform, which was an old legacy uh, billing platform, uh, and also the on-prem CRM with Salesforce. So it was, uh, it was that company that I first got in touch with Salesforce and an implementation partner. So, and, and what was your role through that program? Yeah, so I was like a business uh, SME representative explaining to the project how we worked in sales and in customer service, what the processes were. That was part of the project as it went on. And then later I was part of uh, training uh, the staff, both sales and customer service. Uh, I think we were about 130 or 50 business users uh, and then was like a delegated super user, something like that uh, to support and yeah, obviously doing a bunch of dashboards and reports in Salesforce and also extracting or connecting with the Power BI to, to do the more consolidated management reporting. So did that like light a fire within? Like, did you get that exposure, get that a look under the bonnet at Salesforce and think, right, this is what I've, I've now found what I want to do? Funnily enough, it, it wasn't really when I got the feel for, oh, I, I want to do Salesforce projects, but I, I definitely got a, you know, an appetite for Salesforce, seeing how smooth and slick it was, mostly from the reporting and the insights you could do and how, how quickly you could uh, do that compared to the old on-prem CRM. So it wasn't really until I, I went to work at another company before getting into consulting. And at that company, I worked as a financial controller. So having done sales, analytics, and, and finance, that role was more about management reporting and, again, supporting sales with insights. And we also had Salesforce there. So I looked after that from a Nordic perspective. And then after that, I, I joined uh, Capgemini for about 
four years. That, so that was when I made the switch to the consulting side. And that was in, into like a, a functional consulting role initially? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that was it. And then quite quickly, I, I found, yes, I do enjoy looking at, let's say, one smaller aspect or a user story, but I really enjoy looking at the big picture. How does it fit into the oral process? What, what, what's a company ultimately trying to achieve and how does it connect to other systems? And what's a downstream uh, process after this little bit that I'm looking at? So I quite early on articulated to my manager who was supportive that that was what I wanted to pursue, that type of role. And he <laughs> said, there is something for that. And that's a solution architect. And uh, yeah, then I was really just enabled and empowered to, to pursue that and, and got a great mentor. I was going to say what, what helped you get there quickly, but the mentor you, you said was key, right? So um, and what kind of things did they do that, that helped you get? Because you, you progressed quite quickly into a solution architect role if you look at your start to like from a functional consultant into that. And a lot of people want to do the same and, you know, want to make that step up. But it, it can be a challenging step up, especially also if you've not got that broad IT background, I guess. No, absolutely. So um, I think the first thing is to voice it, because if you don't ask for it, if you don't let people know that you're interested in it, then you won't get the support that you need, right? It's important to not think about either I'm a functional consultant or I'm a solution architect. There is a, there is a transition, right? And you are, even as a functional consultant, you're still a solution architect, but just within a smaller domain or part of the project or engagement that you're working on. So don't put yourself down if you don't have the title or the badge. And then, yeah, I think a, a mentor, so it could be a senior person uh, at the company you're working at. Of course, use the, the Ohana, the, the Salesforce ecosystem, which is full of people who are there and want to, to help. And then I think you really need to do the, the work in terms of uh, studying uh, and, of course, applying what you're studying uh, in your day-to-day -day work. But you also really do need to study. And I think that was the part that I uh, worked on hard because I don't have that IT background. Um, so I really wanted to get the different architect domain knowledge. So I did a bunch of that. Also discussed a lot with my mentor, the different parts, because I wanted to have that as sort of my IT background. And then I could focus more on the functional side which I excelled at. Yeah, nice. And obviously, um, we'll, we'll touch on the book because um, like the, it's the Salesforce Implementation Handbook, right? So what, what did you see on projects that made you think we need to kind of document this and, and point people in the right direction? Needless to say, all, all projects are, are different, yet I, I still think there are similarities and things you see over and over again uh, in terms of how they're set up. You can compare it to like uh, design patterns for Salesforce solutions. Uh, I know you had the uh, last man on uh, recently who wrote the anti-patterns book. And it's really a book for what works well and what doesn't. I guess what, what prompted me was uh, many projects I've been part of uh, and seen seem to be set up in seemingly random ways. And I, and I wanted to capture this, uh, what I thought was a framework for how projects could be set up, minding that there are differences and you could have different delivery methodologies and there's not always a, a right way for everything right when you say they're set up randomly like do you do you find that typically that's because like are you talking in an implementation consultant sense or are you talking like on a customer site who might never have done salesforce before so they're setting the project up in a way that you know they've delivered an sap project before or anything else uh, within their it stack yeah, so all of the above, uh, really, right? Um, so it may be that, let's say, from the implementation partner side, if they are, let's say, in charge of proposing and, and leading how 
to set up the project and how to deliver it, then it may be that the project manager from the implementation partner hasn't done a Salesforce project before, but they've done CMS or ERP or custom development, which is radically different from how you could and should go about a Salesforce uh, implementation because essentially you already have a, a SaaS product out of the box that you need to modify and tweak to fit the processes uh, of, of the company. On the other hand, you have the, the customer, which also may have experience with different types of projects or none, because uh, it really comes down to the people that are allocated to the project from the customer side. Depends on, on their experience. Sometimes they may have worked with Salesforce before as users, or some of them may have been part of implementing it and other companies, but sometimes they have none of those, right? And some of them have no experience with agile delivery methodologies. Uh, and, and, and so you have this, uh, not clash, but you, you need this group of people to come together. And it's just, uh, as you can imagine, it turns out many different ways, right? So you, if you, if you've said there's a framework best practice, I guess, like in, in an ideal world, if everything enables a company to set up a project in a certain way, what does that look like? Like what, what, and I guess there's still no guarantee of success with anything, right? Because things change along the way. But like if, if you were to put your hat on the fact that if we do it this way, there'll be success, what does that look like? So I'd say before. Starting a project, it's uh, it's crucial to have an organization create a clear vision for for the Salesforce project. Right, it needs to be based and part of uh, and tied to the overall company strategy that is leading the organization to implement Salesforce. Because if you don't have that, then it's just an island and there's no clear why. Essentially, right. If you nail this, then aligning your organization internally before the project it really makes everything so much easier uh, as you progress. So vision, the why. Then secondly, it's about defining the nature uh, of what business capabilities you want your Salesforce implementation to support. So that's uh, the what. And then it's about the how, how to deliver, right? Both development-wise, delivery methodologies to consider, and then critically, the change management, communication, and rollout strategy. So you don't need to know all of this in detail before you start up your project, but you need to consider it and have an opinion about it as an organization, because you will be talking about your implementation partner if you go with an implementation partner. And if you are clueless as an organization, then implementation partners want what's best, but they should be having qualified conversations with you as an organization uh, about where to go and what direction, right? Who's responsible for change management? Then like if there's a partner and a, a customer, where does that fall? Good question. Ultimately, the organization, the company is accountable for it because at the end of the day, they're investing in Salesforce in the implementation. So if it doesn't work out, then it's on them, right? That being said, it can and often is something where the intricacies, the, the consulting, the advising, and also some of the, uh, let's say the communication bits and bobs and the different training programs and and all of the gears of the actual change management uh, is sometimes uh, something that is used for implementation partners to support with. Yeah, it's interesting because I think um, if, if you look at like the, the, like I'm not talking big end of town, um, like the Capgemini's Accenture's Deloitte's because they will have change practices, right? But if you look at some of the smaller partners, when they're growing, often they, they change management isn't something they have within their team. You know, they have they might have a couple of founders and then a delivery team, a couple of salespeople, but change management doesn't necessarily come in until you get into that larger end of town. But then a lot of smaller projects probably think 
you know, change management isn't we just need the system built and then we'll start using it but that's probably uh, where a lot of them are going wrong that's dangerous right and i would say uh, if you look at some of the boutique salesforce uh, consultancies uh not doing a promotion here, but uh, but Wave, where I am, which is part of IBM, has a dedicated uh, change management practice. And I think you're seeing that more and more, that if it's not part of the company, the implementation partners, then they will work and have partnerships with dedicated change management agencies, which also exist in the, in the ecosystem. Well, one thing I've always um, wondered, especially um, coming, obviously, uh, in the sales space myself, you're coming from the sales background, like, obviously, every company are, are conscious of ROI and understanding the impact that something is going to have, any investment is going to have on the business. How can a company track that up front? Like, when, when a business is putting a business case together, someone's responsible for that. Obviously, the, the CFO, the CEO, they, they want answers around, we understand why we're doing this, but... Like really, why? Like, what's the outcome after the after go live? H how does a company track that? Great question. So, I think uh, at its core, as you say, it's uh, it's about being able to answer two questions for those two key stakeholders, right? Uh, what investment are you looking for, and what will we gain as a company or organization uh, for that investment? To answer those questions, you need to estimate both uh, upfront. So, the business impact, either what uplift in revenue or what increase in efficiency you can expect the Salesforce implementation to, to deliver. And then there's the cost of the implementation. So that's the total cost associated with both implementing, change management, uh, rollout, and license costs. And, and here you need to make sure to deduct any legacy system costs that you are retiring and, and won't be needing, right? So you will have some savings there. And after you do all that, then it's just the uh, calculations, right? The payback time, how many months until the business impact outweighs the cost of implementation. And then you have the ROI return on investment over some investment horizon, typically three or five years. And, and you mentioned uh, when you were with the roadside assistance company, you were involved in a project. You were on the business side as an SME. Do you see that being the best blend of like, rather than the company just outsourcing the project to a partner and saying, right, you deliver it on X day and, and we'll take it over from there. Does the business have to have reps on the project? And, and if so, how does like, what's the best way to structure that? Yeah, at that project, there was an implementation partner and I was a representative from the business. Uh, and I'd say it's absolutely key. Uh, I wasn't the only one. There were, there were others, but you, you can't outsource it a hundred percent because then you really risk if you're not involving uh, users or people from the business, you, there's a major risk, right? That you're not building what's actually needed. Uh, if you don't uh, show what you're building uh, regularly, uh, there's a risk that you're building the wrong thing or it's a beautiful solution, but it's not really what was needed uh, and so so yeah you absolutely need to have people from the business uh, so to say some future uh, target users and is that like you free up their time completely so like when you were on that project were you 100% dedicated to the project or were you like splitting your time between your your normal deliverables and, and yeah geez this was a uh... Almost 10 years ago, right? Uh, I, I think it was like a 30 or 40% allocation, something like that for, let's say, the preparation phase, the discovery or wh whatever uh, it was called uh, for that project, right? So not, not uh, throughout the year, year and a half or how long the, the development uh, went on, but something like that. I think it's a good, uh, good point, right? Because when we talk delivery methodologies, when you have the waterfall bit, then you have some people be part of the discovery or definition of the requirements. Uh, that's um, all done in one phase, right? That would require 
huge allocation of people from the business and, and IT to be part of then designing it. And then you may go into development mode where you don't have any interaction if we're talking pure waterfall here, right? Any interaction with the business or future end users. But then that also means they don't have to be part of the project and freeze up time which may look like it's uh, an attractive option just from a pure resource perspective, but you can imagine the risk that that then entails, right? Whereas if we're more on the pure agile side, then you need someone from the business typically called the product owner to be fully allocated or have a very high allocation because they will both be looking at the roadmap, the future, but then also doing user story refinement and validating when stories are developed and demoing in uh, to the wider stakeholders. Uh, and that takes a lot of uh, resources, right? Sometimes it's, a, it's something in the middle that's more attractive, like a hybrid model. Yeah, maybe we're going off track here. No, but, no, uh, I think that, that leads nicely to the next one, because I was going to say, like, we, like, when is one option better than the other? Because, like, we hear of Wagile and, and all these things. To me, like, I, I used to be an SAP recruiter, and this was going back, like, 10 years but everything then seemed to be waterfall. And then I'd hear about these projects that were like five years long. Like there was one in the UK, um, like a big shopping center, uh, oh, sorry, a big um, a supermarket, uh, maybe Audi. And it was like a five-year program of work that was like a billion dollars. And it was just a, fa a massive failure. So to me, it, like the way that Salesforce, like quick delivery, like showcasing, show like because things can be built quickly, that seems to make a lot more sense to me, Agile. But like, are there times where actually Waterfall does suit Salesforce? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are some general guidelines for when what delivery methodology works best. So maybe we can just quickly talk about those and then get into some examples or if that's all right. So I think generally Waterfall is preferred if the scope is clearly defined, known, there's a strict budget and timeline to be met. Typically, this is the case for like regulatory requirements. If there's some law that is being implemented and you need to have that uh, in place uh, in your systems uh, in some shape or form. Also, integrations uh, are typically best delivered in a waterfall manner as you need two parties to be available at the same time uh, to design, develop and test. Agile, uh, many variations uh, I've seen work great is when there is an experienced and empowered product owner, right? It is really a senior role because in the true sense of the meeting, they have the authority to make decisions around a prioritization and product roadmap and features, obviously based on great interactions with the wider business stakeholders, but they, they will ultimately be the ones deciding. Clearly defined roles and responsibilities and ways of working, clear development process. So th those are the things that work great for Agile. And then coming back to when, wh when to choose what. So sometimes you will have, uh, you both want parts of one and the other, and then you have to find what, what is a good hybrid model that works best for your organization. And I'm a big fan of having regular check-ins and involvement with the business. Uh, so you make sure what you're developing is actually in line with that. But sometimes you have to accept that you may not be able to release something until you have enough capabilities so that you can effectively retire a system that you're replacing, or there may be other considerations into play, because sometimes an organization isn't only doing Salesforce, they may have uh, other projects going on or doing uh, SAP for HANA migration or something else, right? So you, you can't always just decide, even though this is what you would want to do, right? Can you, can you sometimes like, walk into a customer and like, just by the way that they are, 
tell how you know a certain methodology isn't going to work for even before you've kind of gone deep into a project like maybe maybe the business maturity or maybe they're just like too prehistoric <laughs> with the way that they they do things and you think right agile isn't going to work in this environment it's a good question so it's important to remember that maturity is also something that changes uh, throughout a salesforce implementation project so even though they may not appear to be let's say digitally mature or methodology mature, if they have the mindset and the willingness and the, let's say, self-reflection that their organization isn't, but they want to get there, then you can go together and have conversations about, okay, let's do it in the more agile way or trend towards it, but it needs to be an aligned uh, and agreed upon uh, approach upfront, right? It's something that we will encourage. But it's not always something that is uh, appreciated or wanted, right? But this um, mentality of uh, moving the, the maturity of an organization as you do the Salesforce project is, is really key. Because that is something that, uh, that they will benefit from also in other aspects of their business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So obviously, we've, we've talked projects. Um, now, if we touch on BAU and, and that transition from a project to BAU, uh, what are some of the, the tips you have or... or things you've seen work well for companies that are about to ultimately kind of take ownership of a platform that's been built by a partner? The end of a project, the transition to business as usual is is usually underestimated by organizations because it, it really should be considered a transition to continuous improvement after an, let's say, initial release or, or rollout. Users will typically have a ton of feedback or changes they would like to have made or new features. When they see the system, they will be inspired to do other things, uh, right? Management may have uh, new opportunities they'd like to pursue or capabilities they want to have Salesforce support. Could be extending an implementation with e-commerce or field service capabilities or many of the other things that the platform can do, right? All of this means that you need to be able to adapt to these changing circumstances and priorities even after the initial release and for that you need both technical and a business setup to to handle that and that's where devops comes in right both in the the technical cicd sense but also the mentality of still having people allocated and or working with an implementation partner to facilitate that setup right and then there's data right because that's what uh, what you what you get out of the platform out of users using it uh, interacting with customers uh, to be able to really reap the benefits of all that data and use it for other things, automations or AI, as everybody's talking about. You really need to be on top of that and continuously manage uh, and govern it. Instead of thinking of its transition to PAU, yes, there is something around user management, provisioning and support in that sense. But there's a bigger sense of, you know, if you invest in Salesforce, you should continue to do so because you will see gains from it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think like historically, you know, we, we speak to people and they, they, when they're considering a role, they're like, I don't want to just be bogged down in BAU. And that's the way that you explain it is actually how they should think about it as well, right? It doesn't mean that there's not enhancements and a continual investment and improvement in the platform. It's on that person also to get the most out of Salesforce, not just the business of, of, um, you know, hiring someone into a support role. Like that person can make it what they, they want to. And if, if, if I may just say, if they are able to articulate the value of a new feature or a change request in a business sense, like we talked about uh, when we talked the business uh, case when seeking investment, that also applies to if you're talking about a user story or 
a feature or something like that, right? If you're able to articulate it, it's more likely that you will get the business or management to, to sign off on it. That is, if you don't have a dedicated, empowered product owner who is uh, able to make those decisions uh, themselves, right? And um, I've, I've seen, like I know in, in the US and Europe, um, the Salesforce Center of Excellence has been around for a while. We're seeing a few bigger companies here now starting to implement them. And I think I've always seen it as something that's, you know, like a big enterprise customer might have a center of excellence where they have a huge Salesforce team. But what actually makes up a center of excellence and, um, and who could have a center? Like what, what makes it different from just a Salesforce team? Yeah, good question. So I, I think it's also one of the watered down terms or it's used in many different ways. I don't know the, the, the term in English, right? It can come in many different shapes. Essentially, a center of excellence is a more of a management philosophy rather than a formal management structure. It may seem a bit fluffy like that, but the goal of the COE should be to empower and enable teams to deliver value in the most efficient manner, right? It could be with reusable assets, having development guidelines, um, different ways for how do we integrate if we have uh, this pattern, what, what tooling, change management processes, uh, all of these things uh, should be consolidated so it can be reused and applied. Many different aspects, as you can tell, both business and technical. And typically you have a number of forums that are related to the COE, like a design authority to do a technical design review for stuff before it goes into, into development. And then a data governance board, which typically needs to span across uh, systems as things are integrated. So more of a philosophy, and it may be that an organization has, oh, this is our COE, where the Salesforce team sits within it. Uh, but you can also have a, a more loose structure where people are partially allocated to the COE for the different forums they're part of. When you say about continual in, in, uh, innovation and like ongoing enhancements of the platform, like a COE would, wouldn't just be across that, it would be across projects. Like if it's got that design authority within it, anything that touches Salesforce would run through the COE. Yeah, or at least through the, the design authority. Absolutely. And, you know, there is a, a threshold for what type of stuff uh, needs to go through the design authority. And that's typically decided when setting up the design authority framework at a company, because it, it may not be that uh, each little tweak to a report or some pure UI changes, maybe that doesn't need to go through, but uh, any complex automations or code or integrations or security uh, changes, uh, stuff like that typically should uh, go through. Yeah, I guess so even a company without a big team still need to be thinking about these decisions, whether or not they're going to formalize a COE or like these are all decisions that a, a hiring manager, a, a team leader of, of Salesforce people should be encouraging these kind of practices and the ways of thinking and the ways of working should all be like whether or not it's in a structured environment or not. That's kind of the end goal for everyone, right? Yeah, absolutely. Also, I mean, it's like uh, one thing is those forums, uh, design authority and data governance uh, board. But with all the reusable assets, uh, it, it's comparable to having a knowledge base in Salesforce, right? It will make things so much easier if you don't have to invent things every time for a new project or a new uh, rollout or a new whatever it may be, right? Yeah, sure. So um, finally, on, on the book, like, is it for enterprise customers? Um, could smaller businesses get value from the book? Like implementation consultants as well? Like what's your target market? 
It is for companies that are about to or are already implementing Salesforce, regardless of what the states they're in. It is for any type of role within a company that has something to do with Salesforce that is curious to see where does my role fit within the larger uh, Salesforce program, right? So it could be people in roles as product owners, uh, architects, project managers, or developers, QA specialists, uh, you name it, right? Change managers. It is probably more for medium or larger enterprises, not so much for one person uh, companies. Uh, maybe they will also get something out of it, but typically uh, Salesforce doesn't play that major role within the company. And uh, I guess finally, if anyone's listened and wants to pick your brains, ask some questions, where's the best place to find you? Uh, LinkedIn is where I am mostly present. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, yeah, I'm excited to get this out and, uh, and get some feedback from some of our listeners around the book as well. So, um, yeah, and hopefully some people will, uh, will take you up on that offer to, uh, to answer some questions as well. Absolutely. Thank you. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon and thanks again.